0: You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And we're going to be beginning in verse 3 today and moving through verse 12. As we study the book of 1 Peter, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we began this study last week. And so if you weren't here last week, you'll want to catch that on our podcast or our YouTube channel or our website to make sure that you caught up because we laid a lot of foundational work down and a lot of background down for the book of First Peter last week. But for today, we are in First Peter 1, We're going to be starting in verse 3, moving through verse 12. And if you're taking notes today, the title for this message is Living in Hope. Living in Hope. If you were with us last week, the title of that message was A Living Hope. And we saw indeed Peter show us that we have a living hope, a living hope in Jesus Christ and in the finished work that he performed for us on the cross of Calvary and the resurrection from the dead, making a way for us to have salvation and making a way for us to live for him in this world with a living hope. And today, Peter is going to show us what it looks like to live with that hope applied to our life. And so that's what we're going to be seeing in the text as we move through it. And last week, again, we, we laid down some background and the theme, some foundational work for the study of 1 Peter. And each week as we study, we're going to continue to remind ourselves of the background and the theme of this book, because that helps us to remind ourselves of what we are studying and why we're studying it. And we know that the author of this book was peter the apostle of jesus christ that we see predominantly through the new testament as well he is writing to an audience that is made up of the church that is scattered and at this time persecuted violently by the world powers that be and the theme of this book the theme of first peter is steadfast in christ as we are exhorted to live a life of yes suffering with hope We are encouraged by Peter in this book to stand steadfast with the Lord, who is our living hope, and to live a life of suffering with hope placed in him. And as I said last week, Peter addressed the churches scattered across what is Asia Minor, addressing them in their persecuted state. And as he opened up, he addressed them not in a way that would seek to drag them down further into sorrow and sulking, but he addressed them in a way that was worshipful and encouraging, encouraging them to understand and to realize that they have, as we have, a living hope in Jesus Christ. And he exhorted them through worshiping the Lord to realize that. A living hope we discussed is real to them and is real to us because Jesus, well, he's alive. He's not some dead teacher or good man. He's a risen savior that we see explicitly within the word of God is there extending salvation to the world. And this week, Peter really follows in the same subject, and the same mindset of having a living hope in Jesus, but he's going to take a turn and again, show us what it looks like, not just to have a living hope, but what it looks like to live with that hope in our lives, to live daily with it, to live conscious of all that that hope makes available to us as we live here and operate in this world today. And so that's what's before us as we enter into the into the study of God's Word. So let's pick up together in verse 3 of First Peter chapter 1. We're going to read to verse 5. We're going to pray one more time, and then we'll keep going. So Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, so much for the freedom and the invitation, the opportunity that we have to come here together, Lord, and just to worship you. Lord, we thank you for this day that you've made. Lord, the sunshine and Lord, breath in our lungs and hearts beating. Lord, we just praise you for that. And we thank you that, God, we are here now with an opportunity to dig into your words. And God, as we turn our attention to your word now and the truths within, I I pray that you would help us to understand that, God, this word was written for those that Peter is writing to, but also for us as well, that your word is always true and will always be true and it's truth for our lives. And so God, we ask for your help today to see the truth within your word. We ask for your help today, God, to apply the truths to our life that we may live and live in the hope that you have for us and show the hope that you have in you to those around us. And God, we ask for this, we ask for it expectantly because we know that God, you desire to teach us, you desire to lead us. And so Lord, we ask this expectantly that you would help us, you would teach us now. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, Peter again wants to get across what it looks like to live in light of the hope that we have in Jesus. And the way he does this is by pointing out all that the believer has access to in Jesus Christ. And the way he does it is rather brilliant. I love what he does because what he does is he shows that our, our living in Jesus has a future, a present, and a past blessing to it. And he follows this pattern, showing that our hope and living in hope is something that we live in now, yes, in the present. Something that also, too, causes us to look forward to something in the future, and also has a really cool thing historically for us to look at, knowing that God, well, he wanted to work in our lives. And Peter starts with the future aspect of living in this hope. He goes backwards. He doesn't go past, present, future. He goes future, present, past. He works backwards and he outlines for us here in the verses we just read that of a prepared inheritance that we have reserved in heaven for us. And again, you'll remember that Peter, as he opens up there in verse three, he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He worships the Lord there and he worships the Lord for his abundant mercy that is wrapped up in the finished work of Jesus. That which saves us, that's which makes us a a way to be reconciled to the Lord. Jesus is our living hope as we established last week. And as the reader who has made the choice to take hold of that hope in Jesus, one who is a believer in Christ, is encouraged to worship, Peter then continues on by sharing what our having, that living hope in Jesus, what it looks like for us in the future. Saying in verse 3 through 4 that he has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you. See, Peter here, what he's doing is he's speaking of an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for those who have the hope of Jesus' salvation applied to their lives. And then, as it is now, they would have been familiar with the concept of an inheritance. It's quite simple. It is something that is set aside, that is reserved within perhaps a family unit or close-knit friends for future generations to receive at the passing of the older generation. And Peter here says that hope in Jesus, living with hope that is set in our living hope, has an inheritance that is prepared for that individual, and it is prepared and reserved in heaven. And notice there what Peter does. As Peter there seeks to describe what this hope is and that it is there reserved for us, we notice that he has some trouble in describing it. Like Peter, I like to believe, he, he couldn't figure out what words to use to just say how amazing that this inheritance was. So what he did is he did the opposite. He told us what it's not. He told us what it's not. Did you notice that there? He says that our heavenly inheritance, it is imperishable. It is undefiled and does not fade away. You could say it is unfading. And these words, though they are similar, even seemingly synonymous, understand that they are not the same. They, in fact, each have their own unique meaning as they describe our inheritance. Peter isn't just a pastor trying to pad the runtime by layering on some words. No, all of these are significant. We see the words describing our heavenly inheritance. He says first that it's imperishable, simply meaning that it's something that can't perish. It's something that cannot be destroyed, which is an amazing thing to think about. That in eternity, we have this imperishable inheritance, this imperishable access to and with the Lord for eternity. And as we put our hope in Jesus Christ, that is what we have before us. But also not only is it imperishable, but it's undefiled. Undefiled meaning that it is something that is not polluted or untouched by sin. Which understand for us as humans living in this world that has fallen, we have really no concept of this undefilement. And what I mean by that is though there are many things in this world that we look at, nature is beautiful, the, the stars in the sky, they are beautiful. There are many things in this world that we like and we look at and we hold and we think, ah, oh, this is great. But there's nothing truly in this world, understand, that is undefiled because this world and everything around it, this universe we're living in is no longer perfect as God created it. It is fallen. Everything around us is touched by sin. It is impacted by sin and the fallenness of this world. And so it makes perfect sense that Peter couldn't come up with another word. It makes perfect sense because everything around us, the concept of heaven, well, it's not something that we can truly gain, but Peter here seeks to do his best and says, "It's it's not polluted. It is untouched by sin. What an amazing thing that is to look forward to. And he also says that it's unfading. Unfading means something that is eternally bright, that is not subject to decay. And again, just like the defilement that we have within this world by sin, so too is everything in this world, no matter how amazing it may seem on the surface, it is decaying. Everything and everyone in this world is decaying, it's dying. But our eternal inheritance, our prepared inheritance in heaven, that is something that is unfading. Peter can't tell us much of what the inheritance looks like or what it will be like, but he can definitely tell us what it's not. He says it is imperishable. It is undefiled and unfading. It's eternal and it is good, which is something to pay attention to. Something to pay attention to because it's in the word of God, and Peter here establishes it for us as we put our faith in Jesus and are taking hold of the living hope in, we have in him, and it causes us to live in hope. It's something to pay attention to, and really it is important for, for two reasons. The first is that when we look to our prepared inheritance in heaven that is, again, un- imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, Well, that, well, that provides us with some encouragements. When we learn of this inheritance that is completely opposite of this world that we live in, this world that is perishing, that is defiled, that is fading away, and we look to heaven, we look to the future, well, that right there, friends, that should encourage us as we live here and now. Because though we live in a world that has fallen and decaying and is hard, well, we can be encouraged in Christ to look forward to glory with him one day in heaven. That's an amazing thing. And we should be encouraged by the word of God that our hope in Jesus, well, it gives us access to this inheritance. But the other thing that it should do, and really what what is more practical for us and plays out more practically in our life, I should say, is it not only gives us encouragement, but it also produces within us and should build within us an endurance as we walk in this world. You see, as we take hold of all that Jesus has given to us, as we accept the free gift of salvation that he makes available to us, we take hold of that living hope. And then living in hope, according to what 1 Peter says here, well, that should provide for us an endurance because we know what's ahead of us. And I want you to reread verse 5 with me because here he really seeks to make that clear where he says there that we have reserved in heaven for you. This inheritance is undefiled. He says, for you who are kept by the power of God through faith, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, we see here that we have living hope in Jesus that provides for us this future prepared inheritance. And we see that it is the power of God that is holding us as we put our continual faith in him, that that culmination of our salvation, that that is ready to be revealed to us. And so what that should do for us is it should help us to realize that in this world, again, that is fallen, that is perishing, that is decaying, that is fading away, that we, no matter the heart of this world's, that we, as we put our faith in Jesus, who is holding us by and with his power, man, that we can run the race that's before us, that we can continue on, even if it's hard, that we can move forward and that we can have an endurance in the Lord to see whatever's in front of us and walk through it, knowing that he's with us knowing that he leads us and he guides us, realizing that what is beyond this world, if you're in Christ, again, is this imperishable inheritance, this prepared inheritance for us that is with the Lord. And friends, that is for us from the word of God, that we have as we take hold of the living hope in Jesus, well, we can live in hope looking forwards to what's prepared for us. And Peter starts there. Peter starts there showing us first that our living hope in Jesus and our living in that hope gives us and holds for us a prepared inheritance that is laid up for us in heaven. And that is future for us. But Peter, what he does is he helps us out for the present as well, showing us that there is also something living in our hope here gives to us for the present. Verse six through nine, we see that he moves from a prepared inheritance to now speaking about a present rejoicing. Pick up in verse six where he says, in this, speaking of the prepared inheritance and the, and the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ whom having not seen, you love. And though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, Peter, what he does here is he continues this this thought process of a future inheritance. And he points out that because we have that inheritance laid up for us there in heaven, that that gives room again for rejoicing. The truth is that the reader then and us now that we can be encouraged in this world and we have endurance to run the race before us knowing that that inheritance is waiting on us. And he puts the present rejoicing there at the forefront of the mind, notice of the believer by telling them that the present rejoicing is still possible, that it is possible, that we should rejoice. And then he says, though, now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, at which point we're just like, thank you so much, Peter, for just killing the vibe. Like, just appreciate that so much. And this is reminiscent, if you were with us for our study of the book of James, this is reminiscent of what James spoke of in the opening of his letter. As Peter here exhorts the reader to be conscious of their ability, again, to rejoice, even in the sufferings that they have, that they were going to experience, and that they have experienced in the past. The exhortation you'll remember from James was much like this. And James, unlike Peter, well, he just came right out of the gate. Peter at least gives us a few lines of rejoicing and excitement. He puts the the good before he gets to the hard. But notice that James in James 1, 2, and 3, that he just comes out of the gate swinging. He's like, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, it produces patience. James and Peter, they're on the same wavelength. And that word various is something that we should note because it shows up the same word here in both James's exhortation as well as here in Peter's. And it is the Greek word poikilos. And it literally means, I love this, it means of varied colors. Like imagine a color wheel. Or imagine you're choosing the font for, your, for whatever you're typing out and you pull it up and there's all those squares. Or you go to Home Depot and you've got the massive like paint square wall that my boys love to go up to and pretend that they're different color buttons. And they go and they press them, they're like, Whoop, boop, 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 And it's fun to watch. As varied as the colors are, so too are the trials, Peter and James both are saying, that come towards the believer. And Peter and James, what they both do is they both exhort the believers of their day to not sulk, To not be frightened by them, but to rejoice even as they come their way. And much for the same reason you'll notice. If you were with us for James, or if you read it, you realize that James says the reason that we rejoice in trials is we know that the testing of our faith, it produces patience. And Peter, on the same wavelength, says in verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, where James speaks of patience produced, Peter here speaks of a genuineness that is revealed as trials come our way. The genuineness of one's faith being shown in the trials that come into the life of the believer. And Peter, you'll notice he points out that our faith, though more precious than gold, is like gold in the refining process. And if you want to realize more of what that entails, you should go and check that out. Read a couple articles or check out a YouTube video. That's what I did most of this week as I was thinking about this and like, huh, oh, what, what is, what is the process of gold refinement? I just went to YouTube because it was very helpful. And you know, here and now in the day we live in, in our modern technology, the gold is, is refined with chemical and with, with electricity even and still with heat. But back in Peter's day, man, it was heat only. And when I say heat, I mean like heat, like, like, like the, the videos of watching the gold melting and watching it be there in its melted state, just continuing to heat and heat and heat. That was, that was terrifying heat. I'm not going to lie. It's like the heat you could feel like through the computer screen. I'm just like, man, that is intense. And it had to be. You see, to purify gold, what you did is you melted it down and allowed the impurities that were within it there to expose themselves. They would rise to the top, or they would show themselves out in a way where you could definitely tell within the molten liquid that, hey, there's an impurity, there's an issue. And so what the, what the smelter, I guess, would do, you could call him, is he would, take that, he would take that liquid gold and he would pour it out, or he would try to scrape off the junk that would rise to the top, and he would do that over and over and over and over again until it was just pure gold. This refining process and like it was done there to make it to where it was purified and like the gold going through the furnace as many times as it took for it to be pure to show that it was genuine and pure golds, well, so too is our faith much in the same way. So too is our faith much in the same way. This refining process, well, it shows issues. It refines and it shows the genuineness of our faith which is something that I read and something that I see here, and perhaps you in the same way. I know for myself, I can speak for myself. It it doesn't sound like something that I want to happen, just being completely honest. I, I, I I, I don't like the idea of pain. And if you say that you do, you're probably lying to me. I don't like the idea of suffering and sadness and hurt coming my way. And it doesn't always make me feel better. Again, just being transparent and honest, it doesn't always make me feel better to see the word of God saying it's for my good. Like that, and that's just your reality. The reality is, is I see what the word of God says and I know that it's true, but it doesn't mean that I'm ready for it. But just as gold can't be refined, without the outward force applied. When I think of my own life, and you, if you're honest, think of yours, well, the truth is we don't really have a strength and faith in the Lord without it. I would even go so far as to say that we don't have a genuine faith that shows out without it. That's what the Bible shows us is the case. Because again, here in, in First Peter, he says that the genuineness of your faith is shown. In James, it was, hey, the testing of your faith produces patience. If the Word of God here points out the fact that that is how your faith is strengthened and how the genuineness of it is seen, well, then it must be true that we see within the Word of God that, hey, without the testing, you're not growing. You're not growing. You're not strengthening. And that is something we don't like, but that, yet that is the truth that we see. And not only does the Bible give us that information, but it also gives us examples I love the word of God that it shows those that we consider Bible heroes going through the hard and at times acting out in the hard, right? Like we talked about varied, varied colors, you know, various trials means multicolored. So an easy one to go to would be Joseph, right? From the book of Genesis. We just started Genesis there on Wednesday nights. And in a few months, we're going to get to Joseph in his multicolored rainbow coat. Really, it just means it had long sleeves, but I'm not going to ruin Sunday school for you. I'll keep, let you keep, you know, coloring the page that how you want it. But you have Joseph, who is this favored child, you're a member of Jacob. And Jacob, he, he comes to Joseph and he has this gift for him. He gives him this coat of many colors, this long sleeve coat shows that he's prominent and preeminent in his dad's mind. And that just hacks his brothers off. His brothers already hate him anyways, because he had these dreams that said that his brothers were going to bow down to him at some point in time in their life. They're like, no, that's, that's ridiculous. You're younger than us. You're smaller than us. We're not, we're not doing it. And so they hate him and they hate him even more now that this coat has been given to him and he is now elevated in position above them. And so one day brothers are out feeding the sheep, tending the flocks and Jacob, he sends Joseph to go and find out where they're at. And as they see him coming, they're like, there's that dreamer. What should we do to him? They're like, let's do something mean to him. And so what they do is they find a pit conveniently next to them, a well, and they take him, they take his coat and they throw him in it. And the Bible says that they're sitting there having lunch while they're deciding, hey, what are we gonna do with him? And as they're sitting there deciding what they're going to do to the dreamer, here comes this band of merchants passing by. They're like, we can sell him. And so that's what they do. They take his coat, they give him to them, they sell him, and they have the money. They rip up the coat, cover it in blood, and go to dear old dad and say, your son got eaten by a wild animal. And we see Joseph go from preeminence to the pit. And then he goes to Potiphar's palace. He goes to Potiphar's house, rather you could say. He was an official of Pharaoh and he there serves Potiphar and he serves in there faithfully to where he becomes this elevated steward in Potiphar's house. And as he's there, he's serving. Potiphar's crazy wife comes to him and is like, hey, lie with me as no one's in the house. And he's like, no, because that would dishonor the Lord, be disobedient to my master. And so he runs out of there, leaving his cloak in her hand. And she of course goes and frames him and he goes from the pit to Potiphar's house, then to the prison. And in prison, he's there, and there's these two servants of Pharaoh. You have the baker and the cupbearer, and they come to him with these dreams that they had. And they're like, hey, can you interpret this? And so he does, and one of them, he gets hung, and the other one, he goes to Pharaoh. He is restored to service. And Joseph tells him, he says, hey, when you go back to Pharaoh, don't forget about me. And so, of course, the guy forgets about him. He forgets about him for two years. But after two years, here, Pharaoh has a dream that disturbs him. And the guy from prison remembers there's another guy still in prison that he was supposed to remember two years ago. And he says, hey, there's a guy in prison that can interpret dreams. He can help us out. And so Joseph goes from the pit to Potiphar's house to the prison, now to the palace. He there interprets Pharaoh's dreams, speaks to them, and saves as he's elevated into a position of authority there within Egypt, second to Pharaoh only. He there is elevated into a position where he is able to save, not just himself, not just Egypt, but surrounding areas, including his family. And over the course of time, famine is going in the land and his brothers come to visit him. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And so he puts them through this series of tests so as to see if their hearts had changed, if they were truly repentant. And it's it's, it's fun to to read and see the back and forth and things like that. You should read your Bibles. And we see that happen. And then at the end of it, when Joseph finally reveals himself, they're expecting him to act harshly towards him. They're expecting him to put him in prison or put him to death or send him away. But he doesn't do that. He says, what you intended for evil, God has worked out for good. What you intended for evil, God has worked out for good. And it was this testing, this time that you have to believe as Joseph was there in prison, in the pit, just serving in this place far away that the Lord was working on him and he was becoming ever more knit to where at the end of it, he wasn't angry, he wasn't bitter, he wasn't vengeful. Now he was glorifying the Lord. He was glorifying the Lord who had been faithful. David's another great example. I love David's example of of, of faith being genuine and tested and, and as he's moving through his life, specifically in the time where he was anointed king over Israel, but yet Saul was still king over Israel. And Saul hated David and was chasing David all through the wilderness and chasing him and seeking after his life. And there are multiple occasions where they get super close. And David even at times has the opportunity to take out Saul and he doesn't. He refrains from it because he honors the Lord and trusts the Lord's faithfulness. And you can read the Psalms. So David penned most of them. And as you read the Psalms, you get a really good inside look into the struggle that David had within his hearts, how he indeed had a struggle with the fact that, yes, time was hard. And at times he would cry out to the Lord, even in anger, even in just like this, that's like, why, what is going on? But always, always he would rejoice. And always he would see that the testing of his faith, as Peter here says, well, it produced in him just a stronger faith as he realized the Lord was with him. And that's the Old Testament. You can read in the New Testament as well. Peter's a prime example. Paul is a prime example. You read the travels of the early church in the book of Acts. You see there even just the early church and all through church history, that is, there is consistent trial that is, yes, allowed by the Lord into our lives, That as we press in and see and walk through them that just as gold is refined by fire, so too is the genuineness of our faith shown as we walk through that trial. It is refined. Our faith is refined and is shown genuine through it. And this gives us a reason to presently again, glory along with the future inheritance with the Lord. And Peter speaks to that. He says again, read with me in verse eight one more time where he speaks there of the genuineness of our faith, being more precious than gold, though it's tested by fire, is found to praise and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in verse eight, whom having not seen, you love. And though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Like even amongst the trial in our life, Peter here is wanting to say that as Jesus is our hope, that we can still live hopeful. That even through the hearts, then we can rejoice knowing that one day we will see him face to face. And as we do so, then our faith is grown. And our faith is shown genuine to ourself and to those that are around us. And that's the truth that we see within the word of God, examples and exhortation. And for us, you know, we've talked about this before and we'll touch on this again because it is absolutely the truth. It's absolutely the truth that in this life, this fallen world that we live in is heart. And so too, in this life, as we walk through this life, we're gonna experience the heart of this world. Even if you're in Christ, I want you to understand too, just because you get saved, it doesn't mean automatically that your life gets easier. Just because you're in Jesus doesn't mean that your life just gets easier. In fact, I would say quite the opposite. If you choose to follow the Lord, mission always brings opposition It always does. It always will. You will experience hard as you walk with the Lord. And along with that, as we speak of discomfort, as we speak of trial and pain, I know that in this life, that there is at times, more times than not, where the comfort even of a friend, the words of the right ones, that they don't make the difference in the moments. I, I, I understand that. I've experienced that, as I'm sure that you have. But can you and myself be exhorted from the word of God's day that if you're in it, meaning that right now you are facing the heart of this world, the trial is at your door in your life. If you're in it, or, or if not, can you just tuck this away from when that next colorful trial comes your way? That the reality is that as you walk through it, trusting the Lord, that your faith is strengthened. And as you walk through it with the Lord, understand that the Lord is with you and will see you through it. And now by seeing it through, what I mean, and this is important for us to understand, seeing it through may mean for some of us, heaven. That's a reality. The reality is, it's a harsh reality that we don't necessarily like, but yet we need to trust the Lord in his goodness and in how he's leading our life. That some of the things that we face, some of the things we experience on a daily basis or within our life, some of those things we are not gonna be released from until we're face to face with our savior. That's, that's just a truth. But that doesn't mean that the Lord is any less with you. That doesn't mean that the Lord loves you any less. It just means that you have an opportunity and I have an opportunity to press into him and to see our faith strengthened as we walk with him in this world. And and as we do that, show that faith and show that hope to this world around us that desperately needs hope. You see, we have an opportunity and we have a proclivity about us oftentimes when we're going through it just to look inward. That's because we don't like to hurt. That's because we don't like to feel pain. And so we look inward and we seek to say, woe is me, why is this happening to me? And what we can do is the opportunity that we have is to look to what we're going through and say, Lord, what are you doing in me? What are you doing in me? And what can you do through me in this time? Your coworkers at work who know that you're going through it. They see you and they they, they know what you're going through and yet they see within you joy, yet they see within you hope. I mean, that speaks in a testimony to them of something that this world doesn't offer. Amen. Your family, whether immediate or extended, knows your situation, sees something going on with you. Perhaps it's a, it's a health issue or a financial issue and they see you instead of cursing the Lord and cursing your life, just pressing in and growing ever more in your faith. Man, that's a hope that shines out to them that makes a difference. And that's an opportunity that we have, friends, to not just sulk, to not just be sour towards the Lord, not be sour and myopic and just look inward and say, woe is me, but say, God, what do you want to do through me? How can you use this? How do you want to use me in this? And all through it, we get the blessing. Understand, we do, because our faith in the Lord is strengthened. We realize that he's with us and we're ready, though we may not like it, we're ready for the next thing. We're ready for whatever is next because the trials, they don't stop after we come through one or I get on the other side of one, but we are more ready for it. And we're more conscious of the reality that we are able to comfort others with the comfort that which we have been comforted for us. Paul speaks about in 2 Corinthians 1. And so we see here, Peter speaking of this prepared inheritance, man, to live with that in mind is to live in hope. Also of this present rejoicing, knowing that we have trials, that yes, we are able to rejoice and show our hope to the world. But Peter doesn't stop there. Peter doesn't stop there. He continues on to show what it looks like to live in hope. And I love what he does here. It's so neat. He does something for the reader as we continue on in the last part of our text, where he doesn't look to the future. He doesn't rest in the present. No, he actually goes to the past. And he does this so as to show that the salvation we're walking, the hope that we have a hold of, Well, it's something that's been in the works that the Lord had planned this and writers of the Old Testament had prophesied of it and that brings more weight to it. I want you to pick up in verse 10 with me as we finish out what we're gonna read for today. Where he says, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Verse 12 says, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into Peter amongst the other writers of the New Testament to demonstrate that their writings weren't some novel idea or just some like whim of a thought that they had, but to bring weight to it, all of the New Testament writers and the gospels and Paul and all of the, all the general epistles, the general letters, one of which Peter is, we, we see that they always, they always reference the Old Testament. Like I love what they do as they wrote the Bible, they use the Bible. And that's just a little, another like leeway into just a nugget of application for us today that, you know, the Bible as a whole is something that we need to be familiar with and to understand that the New Testament writers, that they had the Old Testament. And so they use the Old Testament, which shows just more and more how important all of the Bible is. And so if you're not reading all the Bible, you need to, you need to read it all. Even the part that maybe you think is boring or, or familiar. And so you don't need it anymore. Guess what? You still need it. We all still need it. So read your Bible, all the Bible. And Peter writes about the hope we have in Jesus, referencing here the Old Testament prophets and our ability to live in hope as not something, because he sees it there with the Old Testament prophets, as not something fabricated or just made up, like I said. And he points out that the prophets of the Old Testament, they wrote of the coming of Jesus, they wrote of the sufferings he would endure, and the salvation as well that he would provide And they did that, he says, looking for the coming Messiah, saying then, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. And that word carefully is one to take note of. It's the Greek word exonereo. And it means to search out diligently or fervently. And this brings weight to this because you have to think about the Old Testament prophets for a minute. You have to think about what Peter is pointing out, that as they were writing and they're hearing from the Lord what they are to write about the coming of Jesus, about the work that he's going to do, that, that probably for some of them, especially, let's, th- let's think of Isaiah. As they're writing out this text and they're thinking it through, this may have been something that was perplexing to them. I think about Isaiah, who is so prominent in his messianic prophecies that he speaks of the coming of Jesus. He speaks of the ruling of Jesus, of the, of the government being upon his shoulders, of authority that he held. But then he also has to write what we see in Isaiah 53, verses three through five. Where he says there of the Messiah, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, he says, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, we did not esteem him. And surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes, we are healed. Like Isaiah writes about the coming of Jesus, the ruling of Jesus, and the suffering of Jesus. I think too of David, as he writes Psalm 22, you should jot that down and read it later on. There is, David pins this Psalm writing of the suffering Messiah there. And the Old Testament prophets, the writers, they write of his coming, believing that he would, they write of his suffering, and perhaps wondering what that would be like. Just imagine what it would be like for the Old Testament prophets today to read the gospels, Right? and just see the birth and the life and the death and burial and the resurrection of Jesus. They're like, I wrote about that. Like, can you imagine just having writ part of the Old Testament and then seeing it in the New Testament? Be like, that was me. I did that. Be amazing. And they write this and Peter writes of their searching and their writing obediently and diligently as they were obedient to the Lord. In verse 12, he brings weight to it, great weight to it, where he makes sure to point out that all of their writings that he says there in verse 12 that to them it was revealed, what they were writing, it was revealed to them, yes, but not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things, he says, which angels desire to look into. Peter here, what he's doing is he's trying to get across to the one he's exhorting to live in hope that the prophets understood that they were ministering to people beyond them. And they were ministering to people a truth that was beyond their time, that was beyond what they were going to experience in full. And Peter here, he writes about this. The gospel writers wrote about the prophets predicted, and they were reported as fact by the apostles to those believed. And Peter writes all of this to solidify the legitimacy of the hope that we can have in Jesus and that we can live out every single day, realizing that we are living in a place and a space where that's available to us in a way that it wasn't when it was prophesied. I mean, you think about, I mean, again, we said Isaiah, just take the whole Old Testament. I mean, it was written and there was a time as the prophecies of Christ were being written where the finished work of Christ, well, it hadn't been finished yet. Where it was the blood of animals that covered, not the blood of a savior that took away the sins of the world that was there. There was a time before the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You know, we referenced Isaiah and David. You can also think of Joel. We read the statement by Peter that he referenced Joel last week in Acts chapter 2. That there at Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit came, what Joel had prophesied, that happens. As Joel prophesied that in the last days, that the Lord would send and pour out his spirit on his manservants, on his maidservants. And that in the last days, the spirit would be moving and working through the people of God. He prophesied that. He didn't get to see that. We get to see that in the word of God. We get to see that still today. And there was a time before the church and the body of Christ, that mystery that Paul references and seeks to expound on there in Romans and in Ephesians and all through the New Testament. There was a point in time where that wasn't the case. But yet it was foretold of, and alluded to and shown and written obediently by those that God spoke to and chose. And Peter writes this, and we focus on that because just as important as a prepared inheritance is before us, just as important as the ability to presently rejoice in this world now, so too does it just bring so much more weight to the hope we have in Jesus to realize that the Lord had this in mind all along. That the Lord had this in mind. And as we look at that, we can have just all the more hope in the Lord. Because we realize that this wasn't just some, and, and I love this about the Lord, and I love this about what we're gonna be studying in Genesis chapter three come a few Wednesdays from, from now, where at the fall, that the Lord, he, he wasn't caught off guard. That the fall of man, when sin and death entered the world and a chasm was made between man and the Lord that could not be breached by man, that God in that moment was not caught off guard, but he set in motion a plan that he had that worked a plan that brings hope into this world, hope through Jesus Christ, who is our living hope. That as we take a hold of and accept the salvation he gives to us, we have means by which to live in hope, hope that was planned, hope that was prepared and prophesied for way before our time. And Peter writes all of this so as to bring again an ability for the people to live in the hope of Jesus in their lives. And the Bible still speaks that to us today. The Bible speaks to us today, friends, of hope that is bound up and wrapped up in Jesus Christ, which we discussed last week is our only true hope in this world. We can hope in so many things. We hope in ourselves, We hope in our bank accounts and our jobs and resources. We hope in this world and in people and political figures and nations and all. We hope in so many things, but Jesus is the only true hope that we have. That is it. That is the reality. It is the only hope that will never fail. And as we take hold of that hope, well, then that should spur us on to living in that hope as we walk in this world, looking forward, yes, to what's ahead of us in heaven. Amazing, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the prepared inheritance that I have with the Lord, realizing that I am a co-heir with Christ is what the apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. I realize that that produces within me an encouragement to move forward and wells up and builds in me endurance to keep going as it should all of us. And we can presently rejoice in this world knowing that yes, this world's hard. There's no negating that. There's no escaping that, but Jesus is faithful through it, And we can know that as Peter is pointing out here, that all the present salvation that I have that was foretold of, that angels desire to look into, but it's not for them. And when all of these things are present in my mind, the future, the present and the past, well, then I can truly live in that hope that's available to me. And I can truly live out showing that hope to the world around me, which is exactly what we're called to here. We are called, friends, understand to live in this world, hopeful for what we have in Jesus, what we have coming to us in Jesus. But again, not just for ourselves, not just in a myopic me, me, me type of way, but what can we do for those that are around us? What can we show to the world around us? How does the hope that I live out every day, how does it affect those around me, those that I know and those that I don't know? Are you living in light of the hope that you have in Jesus? Are you living in hope today? Are you going to live in hope tomorrow? Should the Lord bring to any day that the Lord brings to you, are you going to live in hope and allow the world to see that? Are you going to keep it to yourself? And that's an option that we all have, an option that I pray that we would see one is better than the other. You know, this past week, I got a phone, it wasn't a phone call, it was an audio message because that's what our phones can do now, it's weird. Um, but I got this audio message from someone here within the body. And uh, this individual, I'm not gonna name names, he didn't name names, he just told me the story and it was amazing. He was at work and as he was at work, one of his coworkers interacted with a, uh, an individual that was coming to, um, you know, do, uh, to, to be worked on at, at, their, uh, at their facility and uh, you know, do business with them. And the coworker came out and was speaking to and was speaking to this individual that goes to our church and was like, "Man, that person, that that, that person is should not be happy right now. They should not be in the place and space where they are. But they are joyful. They are just I want to be around them a lot." And that person went into the room and saw who it was, and they were like, "I you, I know you you go to cover job yeah you go to cover job you heard First Peter last week I heard First Peter last week." And this guy came out recognizing that that was hope that this guy had in Jesus Christ that was showing to this other individual and showing out in a way that affected them, showed out in a way that made them stop and say, that that, that person should not be happy right now. That person should not be in the place and space that they are, but they are. And this individual was able to say, yeah, that's Jesus. Yeah, that's the Lord." My friends, having the living hope of Jesus Christ applied to our lives should cause us to live in hope, looking forward to our future, rejoicing in our present, knowing that God set it all up in the past. That is what we have available to us, church. And so I pray that we would be a church that realizes, hey, we have hope in Jesus. Let's live it out. Let's show it to the world around us and see how that hope affects those around us because it's only the only true hope in this world. Let's pray.